You're listening to We're All All Right, the show that explores all the reasons we have to be hopeful, even joyful, about humanity and our world today, despite what you see in the headlines. I'm your host, Phyllis Wilson. Confession time. I watch a lot of TV. I mean, yes, I watch a lot of TV. Streaming, of course, I'm a modern adult woman. And more specifically, I mean, I watch a lot of documentaries and shows about prison and justice and justice reform. I watch the ones about forced confessions, the ones about people who have been wrongly accused and wrongly convicted, about prisoners let out after 20, 30, or more years into a world that they don't recognize and that doesn't, that can't accept them, no matter how much they've learned, repented, reformed, evolved. I've been thinking about why I watch these shows, why I invest so much time, why I often feel compelled to see the whole series through, why I'm so wrapped up in these stories that I cry, I weep, thinking about the lives of the victims and the lives of the perpetrators who become, and who already were, victims themselves. I think I watch them because they're a reminder of the very worst that we can do, and that we do, to each other. And in that way, they're reminders of the fragility of our collective humanity. I think I watch them when I need to cry, or to rage. Sometimes I think I watch them to feel like I'm actually doing something. That's not one I'm particularly proud of, but yet there it is. But the biggest reason I think I watch is to immerse myself in this question of justice and injustice. We all know what it's like to experience injustice. It's a uniquely human experience and uniquely human concept, justice. But it's a concept that we haven't quite put our finger on, haven't quite gotten right, which is ironic because justice is about right isn't it? With criminal justice, prison, and police reform so present in our national conversation over the last few years, and especially since George Floyd's murder, and since the pandemic has hit so many prisons so hard, I'm thinking about justice, what it means in theory, and what it has meant and should mean in practice. And I'm thinking about the complexity, the absolutely epic challenge of reform, should we ever land on an answer to the question of what should justice mean in practice. So let me start by giving you a five-minute history of prisons and punishment, what we consider criminal justice, using that word a bit loosely, here in the U.S., In colonial times, we followed the British penal system, which included workhouses for minor offenses. Those weren't as widely used, however, as corporal and capital punishment were. These included public punishments such as flogging, the pillory, and even branding. Now, wealthy people could be let off with fines for crimes that didn't really warrant the death penalty. Poor people, of course, didn't have that option. So, they were more likely to be sent to workhouses, 
or what came to be called poor houses, where people who were unable to make enough money to support themselves were sent, under the guise of giving them an opportunity to contribute to society. Not so secretly, though, this was about punishing people for being poor. Cut to post-revolutionary war. Imprisonment was actually a new idea, and it was designed initially, if you can believe it, as a humane alternative to the physical and public punishments that people realized were actually ineffective at curbing crime. Until this time, jails did exist, but they were really only used to detain people before trial, and some were even rooms in people's houses people from the community whose job it was to provide temporary housing to criminals. And in fact, criminals themselves needed to pay, as if they were renting the room. This is how the home-slash-jail owners received an income. The Walnut Street Prison in Philadelphia was one of the first true, what we think of as prisons, now here in the U.S., It was actually created in 1790 and was the first of its kind, where convicts were housed in communal sleeping quarters and would work together in shops during the day. People convicted of more serious crimes were often kept separately in solitary confinement. But again, this was considered much more humane, considering the alternative was public flogging and branding. The idea here was that humane punishment via the relinquishing of possessions and relinquishing of privacy, plus the contribution to society via labor, would be rehabilitative, or at the very least sufficient for making criminals think twice about committing crime again. Ultimately, however, that wasn't the case, and pretty quickly. The reason was as obvious as it was simple. Prison overcrowding a problem that persists and is the cause of most of the problems here in the prison systems today. There were two reasons for overcrowding in prisons back in the day. First, the population as a whole of these new, at the time, these new United States grew rapidly through the 1800s, and so more people overall, more crime, more prisoners. The other reason, a more significant and impactful reason, were the so-called Black Codes. These were discriminatory laws that were established with extraordinary quickness in the South after emancipation. This led to a huge increase in incarceration of former slaves, who were then forced into labor, without pay, of course, and in fact, businesses set up agreements with prisons to lease people, ahem, <clears throat> workers, for the purpose of creating their labor force. So essentially, prisons became overcrowded with former slaves who then became slaves once again, just under a different name. As a result of overcrowding, of course, conditions deteriorated rapidly. And so the very problem that these new quote-unquote humane prisons were meant to solve came roaring back with a vengeance, and with it, violent retaliation against those conditions, of course. Prison reform initiatives have been ongoing since then without much progress. And yes, I'm about to yada 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 about 200 years of criminal justice history, 
And that's because while various levers have been pulled and switches have been flipped, things like more labor, less labor, or hard labor, or manual labor, more isolation, no isolation, more education, fewer privileges, including education, more of this, less of that. That's the idea. And despite all of that push and pull, things have remained largely unchanged since the early days of prisons. And the problem, as I said, of overcrowding and the cascade of issues that it causes persists. And in fact, it's only worsened. You know what's fascinating to me about all of this and not in a good way? Throughout the entirety of human history, some form of ostracization of criminals has persisted. Rather than really consider the larger context in which crime is actually committed, we as humans have preferred to not just punish criminals, but keep them out of sight, with the intention, therefore, of also keeping them out of mind. We have literally created a system for collectively, purposefully forgetting, and we've done that with great success. Hey, hi there. Wow, this is some really good stuff, isn't it? I'm so glad you're enjoying it. And I'm just popping in really quickly to share something else that might pique your interest. If you don't already know, I'm a coach, and this podcast is not only a passion, but an extension of the work that I do with my clients. I mentor experienced coaches, trainers, and consultants to radically up their coaching game so they can firmly establish themselves as the one and only go-to in their niche and to bring more of themselves to the work they do and to the world we share. If that sounds like you, I would love for you to get in touch. You can do that by heading over to phyllis.wilson.pw and clicking on Talk to Phyllis. Join me in a little thought experiment, would you? How quickly do you think crime would be eradicated if we let restorative justice play all the way out? Let me back up and give you a bit of context. For those unfamiliar with the concept, here's a short description of restorative justice from restorativejustice.org, the website of the Center for Justice and Reconciliation. Restorative justice repairs the harm caused by crime when victims, offenders, and community members meet to decide how to do that, the results can be transformational. So, with that in mind, if we assumed that not only is the perpetrator responsible for their crime, but that we are all, in some way, responsible for one another, and we assumed that by bringing all stakeholders together, we can actually heal the wounds that transgressions cause and achieve justice, how quickly would crime be eradicated? Not just as a behavior, but as a concept. Or would what we currently call crime be radically transformed because we would see that behavior radically differently? And what would a criminal justice system even look like if doing harm, in the way that we think about it now, became an exceptionally rare occurrence? Would the criminal justice system be more like a healthcare system? Well, maybe not our current healthcare system, a topic for another episode or several, to be sure. 
But what I mean is, would it look like a system for healing? What strikes me about all of this is how abundantly clear it becomes just how many players are involved, how many perspectives to account for, and therefore just how complex an undertaking reforming our systems of justice really is. Let's take police for a start. Side note, I want to acknowledge that I haven't even mentioned police in this episode until now. Yes, police are an integral part of our criminal justice system, and yes, their history is as fraught as that of prisons, perhaps even more so. And for that reason, a discussion of justice through the lens of police and police reform, in my mind, deserves its own episode. So, what would police look like in a criminal justice system designed for healing? What would be the role of police? What about guards, wardens, and the multitudes of roles currently in place to keep prisons running? What about prosecutors and defense attorneys? What about the advocates and caretakers of victims of crime and their families? How are their roles transformed in a system that recognizes that, while the impact and degree of harm certainly vary, Those who commit crimes are, in some way, victims themselves. I've only just mentioned a fraction of the players, the stakeholders in our current criminal justice system, and my head is already spinning. The amount of, in most cases, extensive re-education, retraining, job replacement, and job creation that would be needed to actually transform the system is monumental, and that's putting it mildly kind of makes you wonder if that's the reason our current system persists with so little change, doesn't it? Because it's not simply about funding, organization, and manpower. It's about willingness. And willingness isn't just for leaders. It's a requirement. It would be a requirement for everybody involved. And that includes you and me. Did all of that sound dismal or impossible, hopeless, as in what's the point? I can totally understand that perspective. And here's another. It's not, and I'm not, hopeless. It's just hard. Hard not because there's so much to do, or not only because there's so much to do, but hard because there's only one thing to do, at least to start. But that one thing is perhaps the hardest thing of all, and that's to change minds. A lot of them. But here's the good news that tells me, and I hope will tell you, that we're already doing just that. First, restorative justice is a thing. (laughs) And it's not just a thing. It's a model that has been proven to work for more than three decades all over the world. Next, non-punitive justice systems have been in existence for centuries. A well-known quote among North American indigenous justice circles is, criminals act like they have no relatives. Justice, then, means restoration of the relationship all parties have with one another and with the larger community. It means integration of a person who has done wrong back into the community rather than ostracization from it. 
In fact, it means reintegration because there's an implicit acknowledgement and understanding that to commit a crime means to disconnect oneself from the community, which is family. In the show notes, I'll link to a fascinating report from the National American Indian Court Judges Association on a 2016 roundtable discussion on holistic and traditional justice. By the way, I love this word holistic used in the context of justice. To me, these terms are inseparable. Otherwise, is it really justice? Next, something close to my heart and a connection to the last episode, also this podcast's first episode, the NAACP's Legal Defense and Education Fund is doing fantastic and essential work in dismantling what's known as the school-to-prison pipeline. They're focusing on providing and building the infrastructure and resources that woefully under-resourced schools need to actually be able to serve all the children in their communities, rather than having to rely on severe disciplinary measures and expulsion for children with challenges simply because there's no other option. Next, the state of North Dakota has been in the process of radically transforming its prisons for the last several years. They've moved away from harsh punishment, shame, and isolation to a model focused around education, healing, dignity, and respect with an eye toward reintegration in the community once the sentence has been served. This is based on a Nordic model, which sees a 20% recidivism rate as opposed to 76% for most prison systems here in the United States. Doesn't it just make sense for prisons to focus on successful reintegration into society? Really? Otherwise, we as a society might actually need to embrace the fact that all prison sentences are life sentences. Finally, and this list is by no means exhaustive, while police reform, as I mentioned earlier, is worthy of its own episode or several, I found the following to be very hopeful and a fantastic sign that things are, indeed, moving in a positive direction. A very successful 30-year-plus-old program called CAHOOTS, which is an acronym standing for Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets, is gaining nationwide attention and is being adopted by police departments in cities across the country. Originally started in Eugene, Oregon, CAHOOTS enables non-police teams consisting of medics and specially trained crisis workers to respond to 911 calls regarding mental health crises instead of police, who are neither trained nor equipped to do so, yet who are regularly called upon to do just that, which of course leads to improper detainment and or incarceration worsening the person's mental health due to lack of treatment and unfortunately, all too often, leading to death. This problem also leads to strained police departments and overworked and stressed police officers, which of course leads to poor mental health and physical health for them and diminished decision-making capacity when it counts the most. The CAHOOTS program, therefore, is literally saving lives. Let's hope and vote for, when given the option, this becoming standard practice nationwide. 
So where do we go from here? Well, my suggestion is that we do the hard thing, that thing I mentioned earlier, change minds. And that's actually pretty simple when we start with our own. I like to do that by getting curious. So here's what I'm getting curious about. Who really benefits when punishment is the purpose of criminal justice? Because it seems to me like it is, like it has been the purpose. And it seems to me like someone, perhaps a lot of people, benefit from that. And who might benefit if the purpose was something closer to education or health and well-being? Here are some resources to support you as you consider those questions and even more of your own. I've mentioned a number of initiatives and organizations throughout this episode, so I'll start by recapping those. By the way, you'll find links to all of these in the show notes. Restorativejustice.org is a fantastic site with everything from historical context to present-day case studies on the restorative justice model. Next, the report I mentioned earlier, published in 2016, from the National American Indian Court Judges Association on Holistic and Traditional Justice. Another report, this time from the NAACP, on dismantling the school-to-prison pipeline. This was published 10 or so years ago, and, as we know, a lot has happened since then. But this will give you a solid understanding of the issue, especially if you're not all that familiar with it. For more up-to-date stories and case studies, you can check out the NAACP's Legal Defense and Education Fund's website, which I'll link to as well. I'm also including a couple of articles, one from U.S. News & World Report and the other from the Vera Institute of Justice on prison reform in North Dakota. The latter focuses specifically on reforms for prisons that house young people, which I really appreciate reading about. I'll also share an article from The Atlantic from December of 2020 on the CAHOOTS program and its adoption across the country. On police reform more specifically, I recommend listening to an NPR segment from back in June of 2020 on examples of reimagining police departments that show promise. There's also a transcript if you prefer to read that one. It was actually on this segment that I first learned about the CAHOOTS program, and there's discussion of other initiatives as well. That's everything I've already mentioned in this episode. For a very in-depth look at what's possible right now, today, in terms of criminal justice reform, I recommend reading A Better Path Forward for Criminal Justice from the Brookings Institute. This report provides a comprehensive, multidisciplinary approach with many, many, perhaps even most of the proposed measures already having bipartisan and majority public support. And finally, if you're like me, or you want to be like me, ha ha ha, and you have many complicated and nuanced reasons for binging documentaries about criminal justice and injustice, Here are a few of the titles I've watched on Netflix for when you need to cry, or you need to rage, or you need to do both. First, The Confession Tapes. It's about coerced and line-crossing confessions in their aftermath. Next, The Innocence Files, about the devastating impact of wrongful convictions. Unbelievable is a fictionalized series based on a true story of a teenage girl in foster care who is the victim of a brutal crime, yet no one believes her. If ever there was a case to be made for a holistic approach to justice, it's this one. And last but certainly not least, 
13th, the 2016 documentary about the explosion of the prison population with the criminalization of Black Americans. Now I'd love to hear from you. What's your experience with the criminal justice system here in the U.S. or with justice systems in other parts of the world? What are your thoughts about something like healthcare or education replacing or at least radically altering our current system for dealing with those who commit crimes? And what does justice mean to you? Also, any show recommendations to add to my list? You can find me and all episodes of this podcast at phyllis.wilson.pw and on Instagram at allrightpodcast. Finally, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode of We're All All Alright.